This week we are continuing to look at the epistle of John, the first letter of John. And today we're in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. And before we read that, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and wonderful Father, Lord, we come to you with thanksgiving, Lord, for every gift you have given us and for giving us the path, Lord, that leads to righteousness. Father, we know that this word was incarnated in your Son who came to live among us, to die for the forgiveness of our sins and to raise again, rise again to new life. Lord, as he gives us life, Lord, grant us life to what we read and to what we hear today. Pray, Lord, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit out upon us upon the scripture reading, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would hear, that we would read, and that we would understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Listen now to the word of the Lord. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a kid, I really loved scary movies. Well, okay, I still love scary movies. That's something that I've never quite grown out of. And one of the favorite movies to watch was, of course, a good old-fashioned werewolf movie. Now, werewolves I always found are very interesting creatures because they came about when just a normal person is bit by a wolf or bit by a werewolf and then this infection kind of goes through them and every time that there is a full moon they then transform into this awful beast and they go ravaging doing terrible awful things into the community and just being just a, a, pe a pest more than a pest just a terrible evil awful nuisance to their world around them now, I remember seeing one movie where they, they, there's this werewolf out there ravaging this community. And so, of course, these courageous men get together to hunt the werewolf down. And you all remember how you kill a werewolf, right? Yep. Anybody remember? Silver bullet. That's right. Regular bullets don't work on the werewolf. Got to use silver bullets. So the group figures out. They forge themselves a silver bullet. They hunt the werewolf down and they shoot them. Now, this is normally the victorious time. Yay, the monster's dead. But see, the werewolf story's a little different. There's a little tragedy to it. 
Because I remember watching a movie and they hunt the werewolf down, they kill him. And as they're looking at the body of the werewolf, he's slowly transforming back into this young teenage boy. They killed the werewolf, but they killed a person too. See, that's what werewolf's a little bit different than your regular monster, right? A werewolf is just a normal person, usually a, a fairly decent, good person living in the community. They're an accountant or a, or a farmer or a businessman or a teacher. It's a father or maybe a young boy who's playing on a football team going to make varsity this year, and then something unfortunate happens to him. He's bit. It's not his fault at all. He has his infection go through him now. And every full moon turns into an awful monster. It's a tragic figure. And we watch this, and we can't help but have a little bit of empathy. There's a strong words there. Can't help but have a little bit of empathy for this person who has turned into a creature because it's really not his fault. And this could be anybody. This could be us. See, I, I mentioned last week, you might remember that monsters are a symbol of sin and evil and wickedness and corrupted humanity. And the cure is we not have, make friends with monsters or, or, or get into romantic relationships with monsters. You're supposed to kill the monster. But the werewolf is different because you don't want to kill the monster. You want to cure the monster because you don't want to kill the person. The werewolf is different because it could be any of us. Any of us could be transformed like that if the mythology is correct, of course. Now, what I like about the werewolf analogy, it is a great symbol for the human condition. The werewolf is a wonderful symbol for the human condition because what it means and what it says is we all have a monster inside of us. Every one of us. Every one of us has a monster inside. We call it sin and we call it evil and every single one of us has this monster inside and it can get triggered at any minute. And it's not necessarily our fault. It's called original sin. We were born with it. That's what our doctrine teaches. All of us were born with the taint of original sin. All of us were born with this monster inside of us. We didn't choose it. Of course, we incur our own guilt by sinning, but we did not choose this infection originally. Not our fault at all. And you can actually see it in, in, see it in your kids. You can see that, that trace, that taint of original sin in our own children. We, we look at them, and you know, and they're, for a long, they're usually like these wonderful, beautiful babies, and these kids are like, oh, they're so adorable, they're so innocent, they're so sweet, and then something happens. If you've had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Something happens, something gets triggered, usually they don't get what they want, and they turn into this beast, this snarling, awful, drooling beast that demands to have its way, maybe throwing a tantrum, and you're like, what happened? What happened to this beautiful, sweet, innocent baby that I brought home from the hospital? Now, I'd like to say, as you get older, you grow out of it. But let's be honest, we don't grow out of it. And most of the time, we're good people. Most of the time, we're perfectly reasonable, rational people. We're great to get along with. We're a lot of fun. And we could just be just really cool, good people most of the time. 
and then someone flips that switch it could be a certain temptation that we have a weakness for it could be an event that triggered us it could be a person that triggers us and all of a sudden we're not that sweet normal reasonable person anymore the beast comes out and we go into total beast mode and we say things that we don't mean to say and we do things we don't mean to do and then we come back to our normal selves we have to say what have I done why did I just say that or why did I just do that? We all have our full moon moment, don't we? We all have that thing that triggers us to bring the monster out inside. And in that moment, we realize that we really are broken and sinful people. And in that moment, we also realize that the battle against evil is a battle against the self. That the real fight against sin is the fight that takes place against us. The real monster we have to worry about is the monster that stalks our own hearts. Now you may be wondering what in the world can werewolves have to do with the first letter of John? Now, as I mentioned before, we're looking over this over these next few weeks, John's letter. And this was a, a, a letter that was written by one of the first 12 disciples, one of the original apostles, a guy named John. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And this is one of the letters, or we call them epistles, that he wrote to us. And in this letter, what John is teaching us is how to be heroes of our own story. How we can find victory in life. And, and as every hero that has to find a victory, we've got to face enemies. And the greatest enemy we face is the enemy that dwells inside of us all. But he's telling us how to fight and to resist this sin, this monster inside all of us. This is how he starts out in verse 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he lays out, first of all, here, here's the reason he's writing this whole letter. The whole reason he's writing to us, it is so that you may not sin. What he's encouraging you to do is to fight this battle inside. To fight this battle within yourself, this tendency for us to, to, to favor the monster, to go to sin and evil, to walk in the ways of sin and evil. He's writing to you so that you do not do these things, but instead that you walk in a way that imitates Christ Jesus. Now, this battle against sin is a battle that has become less important lately. And I'm talking about in our culture at large. It's, it's really not a stylish thing to talk about battling against sin or fighting against your own sin or, in your, or against your own demons. It's kind of an, an archaic, even passe thing to talk about. No, we, we live in a much more permissive culture these days, don't we? I mean, our culture told, tells us if it feels good, do it. To go, to go out there, follow your happiness, whatever that happiness is, or, or, or follow your heart. We don't ask, where is your heart leading you? But just follow it. Maybe leading you off a cliff, but no, just go follow. Follow your heart. And that's what we teach people. We don't teach people to resist sin or resist the monster within. We teach them to follow their desires. Some will even say it's unhealthy not to follow your desires. 
If you don't follow your desires, then you're going to develop this inner pathology. You're going to have these repressed desires. It's going to lead to some sort of insanity or some sort of a psychotic break if you don't go out and follow all of your desires. And that's why we write stories today where people fall in love with monsters. Because as a people, we're making peace with the monsters within. I'm sorry to say the church has gone soft on this battle as well. The church used to be the one to lead the charge against sin and evil, to encourage people to fight against the sin and evil within themselves. But we've gone soft on it, but for very different reasons. We actually use grace as an excuse to go soft on the battle against sin. Let's look at verse 1 again, the second part. It says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Now this talks about the forgiveness of sins, right? This is Jesus Christ. It says, if we sin, which we know we're going to sin. If we sin, we have an advocate with Jesus. It says, Jesus the righteous, the only righteous one. And the Bible calls him the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a, a big word. People don't use a whole lot anymore. But to propitiate something is to satisfy the anger or to calm the anger down. And that's what Jesus did. He stood in as the propitiation for our sins because we incited the wrath and anger of God. We incited his justice by our sin. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, stands as our advocate. And this advocate, he was the propitiation. He satisfied God's anger. He satisfied God's justice so we don't have to pay the price for our sins. He paid it for us. But this is how the thinking goes then, right? This is the message of grace, the good news, which we preach every Sunday. And we preach it boldly. And we embrace it. But this is what happens. In our minds we think, okay, well... I mean, Jesus is taking care of the sin. Why do we have to worry about it? I mean, why do we have to go harping about sin and not sin and good and evil and just kind of run ourselves ragging and fill ourselves with guilt and shame? If Jesus is taking care of it, then why do we worry about it? And, and even worse is that we think to ourselves, well, you know, it also tells us we're sinners, we're broken, we're going to sin anyway. We can't really stop it. If we can't stop sinning and Jesus is going to forgive us for our sins, then, I mean, come on, let's just relax. You know, you do you, boo. Go out and just be yourself. Follow that heart. Don't worry about what you do. Don't worry about what pit you may fall or not fall into. Jesus is going to take care of it all. Just do your thing and let Jesus handle the rest. And so we become soft on sin. We've stopped talking about it. We've stopped worrying about it. And it's tempting to do that. It really is a very tempting argument except for, except for one little problem. It's that the scripture that tells us about grace, the spirit that leads us into grace, is also the one that convicts us about sin. This is what he says in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, him being Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. Now this passage talks about knowing Jesus, saying if we claim we know Jesus. Now there's two, uh, two, uh, two, two ways you can look at that word know. You can look at word know as an intellectual knowledge or know as in relational intimate knowledge. Now if I ask you right here, hey, do y'all know LeBron James? Oh yeah, 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 we know. Because we've all heard of LeBron James. So we, we know LeBron James. But that's not the same thing as if you grew up with LeBron James and you used to go to his house for dinner and he invited you to his wedding and you talked to him every single Wednesday. That's when you can legitimately say, I know LeBron James. It's not intellectual knowledge, it's relationship, relational, intimate knowledge. And when John is talking about knowing Jesus, he's talking about this relational, intimate knowledge. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know him? Not know of him, but do you know him? Do you know him intimately? Do you know him as a Lord? Do you know him as a Savior? That's what he's saying about if you say you know him. And as Christians, our goal is to know Christ. To know him as a Lord, to know him as a Savior, to have this intimate relationship, this intimate knowledge where we can say that we truly are in him and we truly are the children of God. But what John's saying here, he's saying if you say you know him, if you are claiming to know Jesus Christ, but you're not walking in his way and you're not walking in his command, I'm afraid he's got hard words for us. And actually kind of rude. He says you're a liar. If you say you know Jesus, but you don't walk in his ways. If you say you know Jesus and you're not following commands, you are a liar. Now, this can be cause for worry here. I mean, some serious, serious concern. Because as John's saying, if I sin, if I stumble, then I don't know Jesus. I don't know him and have him as my savior. That's not what John means. What John, what it means is if you stumble in sin is you're not perfect. Welcome to the club. It means you're still learning how to walk. That's why you stumble. You're still learning how to get your feet under you. See, we have this mistaken perception about God sometimes. And we tend to look at God as if he is a government inspector, like with one of those government agencies. Have you ever had one of those come to your work, like OSHA or somebody like that? You know when the government inspector shows up, he's going to find something wrong, right? You know he is. He's not leaving until he finds something wrong. There's some agencies where they actually pay the inspector like a, um, like a commission by how many faults he finds. So you know they are going to find something wrong. And we think of God like that, and he's just like the inspector. He's just going to look and look until he finds something he can nitpick and find wrong. Or maybe you think of God like that, uh, like some self-righteous church member that you once knew a long time ago. Not from this church, of course, but from another church you were a member with before. Some self-righteous church member that took a lot of thrill into picking out the faults of other people. And we think of God like that. But God isn't like that. God doesn't need to pick out your faults. 
God doesn't need to nitpick and comb through your soul to look at all the ways that you've sinned and you've done stuff wrong. No, if God looks at upon you and he's drawing near to you, it's not to pick out your faults. He's looking to see if he can see Christ in you. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for your faults. He's not looking for your mistakes. He's looking to see his son reflected in your life. He's looking to see Jesus reflected in your words, reflected in your actions, and most of all, reflected in your heart. God's not there trying to bust you or to keep you out of heaven. God wants to see you reach your potential. It's a potential you don't even fully realize yet. He wants you to be like Jesus. Friends, we can't be like Jesus if we let the beast win. We can't be like Jesus if we let sin become the rule of our life. Because if sin is the rule of our life, how can we say that Christ is the Lord of our life? If we let the monster win, how can Jesus win in us? And if you don't see your sin as a monster, then you don't realize the true nature of sin and evil. And God loves you too much to let something like that spoil his good creation. Because you're better, much better than a broken creature. Listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is what God wants for you, for every single one of you. He wants to see his love perfected in you. I think that is just a beautiful way to put it. To see his love perfected in you, perfected in your life, perfected in your personality, perfected in your mind, in your soul, in who you are. And that's the reason for all these things that he does. The reason why he gave us these commands, the reason why he gave us these laws, the reason why he teaches us about sin and evil and about good and evil and about good and not good. The, the whole reason he teaches us, it was the reason his son came and incarnated among us. It was the reason he died on the cross. It was the reason for his resurrection to life. It's his reason for forgiveness. It's the reason why he gives us his grace so that his love may be perfected in you. The way that happens is that we walk in the way of Christ. We follow in the footsteps of our Lord, not of the world, not of our sinful desires, but in the ways of Christ. Imitate his life. Obey his word. Obey his every command in our life. Do we do it perfectly? No. Don't do it perfectly. That's why John reminds us at the beginning of this passage, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for all of our sins. But friends, if we let the beast win, then we shut Christ out of our life. If we let the beast have dominion over us, we're saying, I want the monster more than I want Jesus.
had a conversation this week with uh, one of our elders, and he put it to me just right. He said, the older I get, the more I hate this sinful part of me. And what he also meant was the more mature that, that he becomes in Christ, the more he hates this sinful part that dwells within him. Friends, we all have a beast inside of us, every single one of us. We all have a potential for sin. We have a potential for evil. And the longer we walk in Christ, the more we hate that monster that lives within us. So how do we kill it? How do we get rid of it? Of course, as you all know, according to the lore, you shoot the monster with a silver bullet. Unfortunately, that kills the person too, right? We don't want to kill the person. We want to cure God doesn't want you dead. God wants you to live and live abundantly. Kind of went on a whim and decided to look up to see if there were any older cures for being a werewolf. And I came across something interesting. Way in the Middle Ages, before they had silver bullets, before they even had bullets at all, they actually had a way to cure somebody of being a werewolf. They say the way to cure a person of being a werewolf is you call them by their Christian name three times. That's what it took. Remind them who they are. Help them remember their name, and not just any name, their Christian name. Help them remember who they are. Now we know there's only one cure for sin, and that's the blood of Jesus. That blood's working in me, and it's working in you. And we know we can't cure ourselves, we can't cure sin on our own, but we can remember who we are. We can remember who we're made to be. And you are not a beast. You are not a monster. You are made in the image of God. You are not made to walk in darkness. You are made to live in light. You were not made to be consumed by sin. You were created so the love of God would be perfected in you. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.